0: Hi, I'm Tracy, an impassioned lady on a quest to slay working motherhood and find fulfillment. I'm here to help you navigate the beautiful and damned in the life of a working mom. I'm a PA, mom, wife, and lover of fashion who is guiding my fellow working moms to ditch the dread and find fulfillment in the wonder and the war zone that is modern motherhood. I teach you the clinical pearls you need to create a life you love, pearls you can apply today to change your life tomorrow skirt around those heavy real-life topics? No way. Here you'll get an unfiltered ringside seat. You'll hear about the good, the bad, and the ugly. Parenting, step-parenting, marriage, motherhood, faith, and finances are all topics we will sit down and unpack together. Think of this as your one-stop shop for all the motivation and encouragement you need to help navigate working motherhood. Each week, it's like a mom's night out had a baby with a TED Talk. Then the mom's night out went back to work. Pull up a seat, get settled, and get ready to be inspired and encouraged. This is Fulfilled, the podcast. Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of Fulfilled, the podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Candice Myrie. You may know her as Dr. Candy or Dr. Bikini. She is an emergency medicine physician, an international surf doctor, and self-proclaimed expert in the unexpected. Dr. Myrie, thank you so much for being here today. If our guests aren't already familiar with you, could you please introduce yourself?
1: Sure. My name is Dr. Candice Myrie. I'm an emergency medicine physician and known at Dr. Candy's Survival for a post on July 24th.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your background and your training to become an emergency medicine physician?
1: Sure. I attended Wellesley College, and towards the end of my time there, I had spent about three months in Mexico and was really interested in being a marine mammal biologist, but after my time out there, it was just so... Difficult to be out in the water for six or seven hours a day, um, listening to hydrophones and following the dolphins, and sort of overall exhausting. I couldn't really figure out how I could make this work. Marine mammal biology wasn't really a thing you went into at that time. There was Mm -hmm. dolphin training, and that was about it. So when I got back that summer, I talked to my parents and was so interested in women's health and psychobiology and decided to pursue medicine. Um, I'd been really intrigued by my dad's career and gone many times to work with him and so my senior year in college I decided to go to uh, medical school but I didn't have any of the prereqs so I spent a few years after college gathering the prereqs and tutoring and coaching soccer and then was able to um, be accepted to USC medical school and from there I trained as an emergency medicine resident and eventually I've had a 20-year career in Um, emergency medicine.
0: That's great. So could you share a little bit about your experience as a woman
1: going through medical training specifically? Sure. It was, it was very difficult. I I think there was a lot of women in medical school when I first started out, um, but they definitely weaned out when it turned time to pick our residency training. It was a very male dominated field. There was only two women in my class. The other 16 were men. And It was extremely competitive. Uh, There definitely was some favoritism towards the men in the class, Mm -hmm. which was often subtle and sometimes not so subtle. I do remember my first experience with uh, sexism in medicine was a medical student when I had an attending saying very inappropriate things to me and I had to turn them in to The medical school dean and he was able to fire him but he was just a volunteer and that was an easy task it's much more difficult when you start becoming a resident in a competitive field in emergency medicine you're dealing with attendings who've been there for years so I had uh, one attending when I was working at a hyperbaric chamber in Catalina and treating a diving accident patient say all sorts of things to me All during the night when i was treating a patient in the chamber but it was so subtle i could never really pin him down um so i was never able to make any impact and often times when doctors would say things to us or yell at us inappropriately or talk down to us or make comments it was so quick that i it was almost too quick for me to even write down or think to go telling anyone we were just trying to make it through the residency program so I really had just a, a mechanism and I, I literally would forget what the doctors or the attending said to me that was horrible almost instantly.
0: Mm-hmm. And that
1: was the way I managed to just get through it.
0: Yeah, I think that's a little bit of a coping mechanism. So I found you on social media because you had posted about the hashtag MedBikini. So if anyone listening doesn't know, um, there was a vascular surgery article that came out written by male vascular surgeons or students who were deeming um, content to be appropriate or inappropriate on social media by their female, specifically female colleagues, um, seemed to be the main target of the article. It has since been retracted, uh, but not before there was this huge eruption of women who were posting um, hashtag my bikini posts on social media. So um, you had a meteoric rise to fame in that in that regard relative to the number of followers that you had. Can you speak a little more to why you stood up to, uh, when you saw that article and why you chose to post?
1: I think it really hit close to home because I had experienced so much sexism during Gosh, even starting back from high school, I could tell you stories, in college as well. Um, It really just struck a chord with me, and two of my good friends here on Kauai posted stories, pictures of themselves in bikinis, and pictures of themselves in their professional gear, and I thought, well, this is really something that I feel very strongly about, and I felt just as strongly about the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement, and, but I just am not really one to speak out about politics or movements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On social media, I really have always used social media as a place for me to follow up with my friends from college um, or just to post funny things. It was just kind of a lighthearted arena for me. So it was sort of out of character for me to do this, but I decided to post something and I remembered that I had played um, had reenacted a scene in my life, which was basically rescuing a woman who was hit by a boat in the middle of the ocean and that there was pictures that were available to me from the reenactment of Untold Stories of the ER. So I honestly Googled,
0: <laughs> I <yourself>? Googled myself,
1: <laughs> found the photos and posted them and said, I you know basically just really strongly, this is what I did to save this person's life. And I think it was just such a strong antidote and just brought the two worlds together of the unprofessional appearing attire and... The, you know, the board certified emergency medicine doctor that I was and showed that when those two worlds collided, it, it was basically everything everyone was looking for in terms of to hold on to because everyone had the bikini pictures and everyone had the professional appearing pictures, but no one had a picture of both. And mm-hmm. that's, I believe, why my picture was put out there and just went viral it was because it just was synergized the movement. Yeah. I mean, it was
0: very powerful. It was very moving to me. And, uh, so you posted it not expecting that it would gain really that much traction. You were posting it in, in solidarity, it sounds like.
1: Right. I just thought I am just one woman in a sea of, you know, a sea of disgruntled <laughs> women regarding the double standard in medicine that still exists. And so I didn't expect much. I have 300 followers and most of them are good friends of mine or, 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 people in healthcare that I've worked with before that I keep in touch with. And I went off to work mm-hmm. thinking, you know, I'm just going to contribute to this and no big deal that other people would just say, Oh yeah, great job. Let's, you know, let's do something about this. So I went to work and I was working in, a, in the ER here on Kauai. And I heard my phone just make a few noises, you know, just that zzz noise. And then a couple more times in a row, zzz, zzz, and then it was eventually just, zzz, zzz, just continuously. <laughs> Wow. Oh. And I'd never heard that before because, you know, I have 300 people I am in contact with. So I'll hear it every once in a while and it doesn't bother me. But I literally had to turn my phone off mm. so that it wouldn't bother me the rest of the shift. And by the time I got home, I went from having 300 followers to 10,000 that night. And then the next day it was 20,000. The third day it was 30,000. And now I've settled around 35,000, which is <laughs> crazy. <insane>. It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. Such a crazy shift. Yeah, I never really understood the word viral until it happened to me. I heard people talk about it, but now I get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. We learn about viruses in medicine and we like know how true viruses spread, but this is like a whole, you know, it takes on a life of its own when something like that is happening. It's very interesting. Right.
1: I was choking with my friends. I said, I've gone almost as viral as coronavirus. <laughs> That's funny.
0: So I know we kind of touched on some of your experiences in residency. Um, dealing with sexism back through college and high school. Um, What do you think we as strong women in medicine can do to combat this, either as it's happening, which, as you said, it can sometimes be subtle, it can sometimes be very quick, or to follow up and prevent it from happening to other people, other women who are also in the profession around us?
1: Well, I think first is a preventative, which I think we do a really poor job at in medical school. I mean, there's a couple things, and of course I haven't been in medical school for years, but there's a couple areas that aren't really touched, and one of them is sexism. We had no classes when I was a medical student on that you would be experiencing sexism and what you would do. Or, you know, we didn't talk about race issues, we didn't talk about really any issues like that. We and then of course the one of the worst things for me as a physician working 90 hours a week was that there was no conversation about business and economic skills or nothing longer than a one hour talk about nutrition. So mm-hmm. there's the only thing that was a focus was medicine and learning how to treat a disease patient. So what I would do is make that part of the curriculum, to really go into medical school and just go back to the roots of it. So that would be my, my first strategy. maybe they've done that from by now. I honestly don't know. Um, I've been removed from for so long. Uh, but one thing I knew that I could do was basically give women and men a safe place to talk about it. And I thought, well, instead of me just complaining and all of us complaining that there's a double standard and how horrible this store study is in the journal of, of vascular surgery and how dare they, you know, look at our social media pictures and decide that we're unprofessional, but men in speedos are not unprofessional was to first, you know, gather my allies, which are men and women. So I think it's really important to unify not just women, but men. So I had all the physicians on the island, women and men, send me pictures of themselves in bikinis and Speedos to show that we're all one group and we're not just women against men. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really important is to unify everyone, You know, decide that we want to make it preventive in medical school, and then give us all a safe place to meet. So I recently, in fact, yesterday, created this Med Bikini forum on Facebook, which you'll only be able to enter if you answer a few questions. So we can make sure that we're, you know, have a a safe group. And then basically it's a place where you can say, look, I'm being sexually harassed at work and I'm at this institution. Is there anyone else there who's also being sexually harassed? And if so, what can we do? Should we go to HR? Do we need to collect more statements this person's making or what can we do to help each other? Or if it's an isolated case, then reaching out to all your colleagues and asking for suggestions. So mm-hmm. I think that's really where a strength comes is, is numbers, because that's what the med bikini movement was, was just the sheer numbers of women saying this article in this journal of vascular surgery is outrageous and has no place being in a medical journal. And we all stood up in numbers and they, they basically pulled the article. So I think- yeah. I think unifying everyone is the best solution.
0: Yeah, there's definitely
1: power in that unity.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. So I had seen you post on social media about your dad, who sounds like just an incredible human being for sure. Um, it sounds like he was uh, a real strong feminist and also a cardiothoracic surgeon. How do you feel like his talking about that or raising you in that world has influenced you for the rest of your life?
1: He was just a really strong lead by example man. He came from a very, he came from missionary parents. They really were very focused on helping their communities. And he became a humanitarian as a result of that. He spent a lot of time educating himself because he realized that was the way to escape out of poverty. And he, from age 16 on, he basically was on his own. He immigrated from Norway to the United States at age 16 and basically put himself through school. So, his example to me of that education um, really brings you a life well lived and also the opportunity to help others really hit home for me. And as a child, I just thought, what better service could I do as a human but put myself in a situation where I can help someone in their darkest hour? And that's really what led me to emergency medicine. One thing that I that I really was sad about was the lack of relationship I really had with him growing up. Beyond following his example and his lead, I didn't see him much. He was working long hours during the week, on the weekends, often he'd disappear in the middle of the night and come back the next day for emergency cases. So my relationship with him really didn't start till he was actually almost retired. Uh, we just would have bits and pieces of quality time. So that's also part of the reason I didn't choose to go into surgery, although I loved it. I just thought if I want to have any type of family life, I realized that surgery has to be your first love and your family and other hobbies is your second. And I wasn't willing to have that type of sacrifice that he had for his patients.
0: Interesting. We had talked uh, before this recording and you were talking to me a little bit about um, Project Mercy. Can you say a little bit more about what that is?
1: Sure. Project Mercy is an amazing organization. So my father was born in Addis Ababa and he lived there for a few years, went back to Norway and eventually immigrated to the United States. His father lived in Addis Ababa and was a linguist there working under Haile Selassie and met a woman named Marta Gavradzadek and they married and they decided that the best thing for her was to have her educated in the U.S. So she went to the U.S., became educated, returned back to uh, Ethiopia, and was there for many years working with Haile Selassie. However, when the communists came in the 70s, she barely escaped with her life. And when she returned to the US, she started an organization called Project Mercy. And it really started at a grassroots level, and they were able to provide uh, food and aid during the 1980s, especially when there was starvation in Ethiopia and the organization progressed to until 1993 where they were invited back after the communist government fell to a small rural town there and in that town they were able to provide healthcare schooling and just really create an infrastructure because they realized not only do you need food but you need the infrastructure to 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 grow food as well as the education the medical so they've brought all that to this small rural area in Ethiopia and the, and the entire organization has just really thrived and there's lots of opportunities to volunteer there, whether it's medical or non-medical.
0: Awesome. So people can give and also give up time and talent if they're interested in and in participating and actually serving the people through the ministry. Correct. Awesome. So you tell me that you're writing a book, which is something that I've always wanted to do. Um, So tell us more about that, what the plan is and what inspired you to do something it sounds like you've also been wanting to do for many years.
1: Right. Well, I went to Wellesley College and I loved writing. I'm a much better writer than I was a medical student. In fact, my residency professor, the director, looked me straight in the eye and he said, "You're." essay to enter residency was amazing, (laughs) much better than your MCAT scores. He's like, why are you in emergency medicine training? You should be a writer. So I really struggled for many years um, wanting to write, but medical school and residency is exhausting. So getting the energy to go home and write stories after a long day is near impossible. Fortunately, I can remember a lot of the stories. And then I wrote down some of the amazing ones. Um, And then around the time that I experienced that horrible accident in the middle of the ocean. When the woman was hit by a boat, I started writing and I wrote this chapter basically describing her accident. And then I was approached through a friend of mine to reenact it on untold stories of the ER and decided then that I was going to turn it into a book, but I was really hesitant to do it because I didn't know what my employers would think of me
0: mm.
1: because not only did I want to write a book about being a surf doctor, but I also wanted to write about my own personal experiences. And I I didn't know how I'd be perceived. And women in medicine were un, under such a microscope, I felt through medical school and residency, that I didn't want to rock the boat and have someone say, oh, wow, you wrote this really interesting book about being a surf doctor. But here you included this chapter about this, you know, racy sex scene, or you're talking about... You know, whatever I decide to talk about in the book, I just didn't want to be judged. And I, Mm -hmm. I thought about going under an alias, but then I just threw the whole idea away because I thought, you know, just why bother? I'll just, (laughs) I'll just remain in anonymous, you know, write, Keep my stories, talk to my friends about my stories, but I don't need to go public with any of it.
0: Hey, it's Tracy. Do you ever feel stuck, stagnant, overwhelmed and overworked? I've been there, and honestly, I am still there many days. I wanted to take a second to remind you that you have unique talents to do incredible things, that your big dreams can change your world and the world. But really, honestly, only if you're willing to first define what your big dreams are. Are you looking to create some direction in your dreaming? Do you want to create clarity and figure out where the heck your life is headed? I got you. I created an incredible guide to design your dream destination. It's four steps to go from feeling frazzled and overwhelmed to feeling fulfilled and joyful for this exact purpose. I will walk you through the four simple steps to go from dreaming those big dreams to living them out. This podcast, the one you're listening to is a big dream of mine and it's actually happening. Trust me, the process in this guide works. The best thing? The guide is completely free. I'm giving it away to anyone who asks. Simply send me an email at fulfilledpodcast at gmail.com with the subject line, I'm ready. If you are ready to stop feeling stuck and start taking big steps towards the life of your dreams. I can't wait to hear from you. So the target audience for this podcast is working moms, specifically working moms in medicine. Um, and so I wanted to ask you a little bit about your personal life, how being married and being a mom kind of works in with being, uh, being
1: a doctor and, and doing other things that you enjoy. Sure, it's extremely difficult. <laughs> I, you know, it's such a struggle. I started medical school late. I started when I was 26. My friends were getting married then. I knew I couldn't do both. I'm, I'm smart, but I don't have a photographic memory. I studied hard. I studied frequently. I think dating in medical school was difficult. Also in residency. My sister used to say, if someone wanted to date you, they'd have to throw themselves in your car. Between <laughs> residency, the grocery store and the gym and surfing, of course. <laughs> um, so, you know, I, I think it's very difficult to be a mom in a and a doctor and even just have a relationship with somebody else because we have such strange hours too. So gosh, I went on Match.com. I went on eHarmony. I didn't meet anyone from the time I left residency at 32 until 39. It was really difficult to date in LA, I think. You know, they say, I'm sure a lot of the female doctor, doctor moms can relate to me that and I don't know how racy your show can get, but <laughs> the pyramid for men when they become doctors is like this. So they're at the top of the pyramid and they have this huge dating pool. The pyramid for women is like this. Mm, okay, So there's a smaller and smaller group that you can select from. I don't know whether it's because you're career women or mm. egos get involved or what it is, but I just felt like the pool of men that felt comfortable dating me was extremely small. And I know a lot of my colleagues in fact, struggled with that. And a lot of them didn't get married because of it. Um, I honestly had sort of resigned to the fact that I was just going to surf and work and travel the world. And I just happened to meet my husband surfing in, in the ocean. In fact, I read, I had dated a guy from match.com for three years and he had promised me marriage and kids and the whole deal from 35 to 39. And I just waited and waited and waited. I finally broke up with this guy and was just like, Are you kidding me? I'm 39 now. I mean, what the heck? All these years. So I read this book called The Secret Soulmate. And I'm usually not into this kind of thing. But oh, I cool. <laughs> followed the rules. I read this little book. It was short enough to keep my attention. It said, write down everything you're looking in for in looking into for a partner. Clear your emotional space of every other person you've been involved with. Put some sea salt on top of a um, surface and then put rose quartz on it because it brings love into your life. Okay. And as I said, I'm not religious. I'm a humanitarian. I feel like I'm spiritual, but the place I feel closest to the universe is in the ocean. So this was sort of a new sort of Zen kind of Mm -hmm. spiritual thing that I wouldn't normally do. But let me tell you, it worked. Within one month of me doing that, I was out surfing. And I look over and I just see this merman. And he is just so handsome. And he's got these greenish blue eyes, which I'd written down on the list. And this blonde curly hair. And he looked at me and he said, hey, are you getting any waves? And I thought, is this guy talking to me? Because (laughs) I can't remember the last time anyone cared if I was getting waves in the Pacific Ocean, especially in Los Angeles. And we just had this great conversation, and I sort of pointed to the house I lived that had a mermaid flag hanging, and he left a note on my door the next day. And it was just the loveliest romantic story that I could ever imagine being the end to my pursuit for a partner, because I had just done it all. Bars, eHarmony, Match.com, I mean, you name it, I tried it. Matchmaking, I don't even want to tell you how much money I spent with one of those (laughs) millionaire match companies. So, I mean, I think that's my my biggest kind of how can I say this? I know that all of the female physicians struggle with this before becoming moms, and then before and then when they become moms, there's a whole nother struggle, and that's the balance of the partner, the career, the child and that's really difficult too and I think we talked about a little bit between emailing that you know the biggest message I would give after being married for ten years and trying to figure out balancing the child and the husband and the work is just to give yourself a break. And I think our daily expectations of what we're going to get done in one day is just huge. And we need to figure out really what we can get done in one day. And just, you know, my, my grandfather used to say, keep your expectations low and you'll never be disappointed. <laughs> Which I don't think is necessarily a great thing to live by, but it definitely... Helps you just you know focus on what's important and not give yourself don't beat yourself up every day because you can't get your to do list done.
0: Yeah, I think that as as working moms we expect to be the working mom, but also the stay at home mom and the soccer mom and you know every kind of mom that has all this time. But you're also juggling a full schedule or what you're doing at work, and so you know you can't be in the classroom every day. You can't be at every soccer game because you have another passion, another, you know, a career that you had, you know, probably before these kids came along. And I think
1: Mm -hmm.
0: as moms, it's hard to, to balance and to say, you know, it's not selfish to do what you were called to do. It's not selfish to, to work and save lives and and do things that you enjoy. That's what everyone should be doing. And and because you're a mom, doesn't make you any less worthy of pursuing your dreams or enjoying your hobbies. I think we, as a society, we tend to, to say that you know, people have kids and they have to lose themselves in the pursuit of being the perfect parent, but you can, you can be both. You can be who you are and who you were and who you want to be and a mom. I think that's an important message for for moms that are listening.
1: Yeah, I think that is a really important point. And, you know, also just the fact that there's a lot of mom shaming, whether you decide to have a career life or whether you decide to be a you really can't win a full-time stay-at-home mom. You know, you're really, people can spin it any way they want. And then the other topic I want to bring up too is about gender equality and, you know, the stay-at-home dad. There's a lot of dad shaming as well. You know, no one really thinks twice about the mom staying at home. But in my situation, I'm the primary breadwinner and my husband stayed home for probably the first five years that Sienna was, um, you know, a little one. And we felt that that was important. And it didn't really make sense financially for both of us to be at work with the expense of childcare. And really a lot of the comments I had from other friends and, and family was unfortunate. And they would make comments to me like, well, isn't he going to get a job? Or, you know, how long are you going to support him for? And all, all types of comments that are just so sexist and just really display an unfortunate Double standard in the world and make it harder on us, really, um, to work and, like you said, exercise and have hobbies and do all sorts of things. Cause you're sort of shamed into, well, why are you taking an hour to surf? You should go straight home after work to be with your family and, you know, not realizing that that's what recharges me. So when I do come to my family, I am an excellent parent, an excellent partner. So I really wish at some point that type of double standard and, Mom and dad shaming for different reasons would come to an end.
0: Yeah, I think uh, we live in a world where everyone seems to think their opinion matters, and so everyone feels like they want to share, you know, their opinion at your life. We have sort of the opposite. We have five kids. Uh, I have two stepsons that I, you know, acquired when we got married, and then I've had three babies in the last five years. And pretty much every time that I'm pregnant, people at work ask oh, like, so will you be staying home? Like, when are you going to go part-time? When are you quitting? And, you know, every time I say that I'm, I'm coming back, you know, I'm going to take 10, 12 weeks off and, you know, I'm planning to be back in the OR and back doing what I love. And not one single time has anyone asked my husband if he's planning to quit and raise the babies that we obviously made together because that's where babies come from.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's just like, you know, yeah. it's just
0: this, I've also had people say, "Oh, well, you have a good career, so my income will cover daycare." And I and I say, "Oh, I'm sorry. Did I make these children by myself? That my husband's not responsible for feeding and caring for them? Like, it, it's a it's a partnership, and at our house, we do things, and we are responsible for them. But I think as a society, we're not there
1: yet. No, we are not there yet. It's unfortunate. I th- I thought we'd be further by twenty twenty. I think that's why." I- I became so upset when I saw that article because I just couldn't believe. I'm like, are we still talking about this? Is this oh, I still know. Awesome? And you
0: like read the article and you're like, it could be 1920. Like, it, you know, it, it's crazy that it's 2020. It It seems like these things – I wasn't there, but it seems like this was how it felt then.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I've kind of – I've sort of checked out. I mean, I didn't mean to really, but I – for I still go to my Wellesley college reunions when I can and I have a group of friends that we keep in touch with, you know, definitely with the pandemic zooming and all that, but I've kind of, you know, checked out of the feminist movement in terms of, you know, really being active with groups and I I just felt, you know, after I finished residency and had been out for a while that I was a strong independent woman and I was traveling to these international locations to be a physician and I I didn't really feel like I needed that close network anymore. But now I am so enjoying getting back. I mean, I cannot tell you just so much positive feedback that I've I've received from thousands of people, not only men, but women. And I'm like, I want to get back in here again. This is fantastic. I mean, it has changed in that sense. Like, I never would have, I don't think, felt so much love from mm-hmm. men especially that understand that they can be feminist too. It's just about equality. It's not about you know, women's rights and women fighting for their rights. It's about all of us just wanting to live in a partnership in, yeah. in life together.
0: Yeah, I think it has brought to light for many people. I do think we get comfortable with, you know, we have our cocoon and we're doing our thing and we're living our life. And if it's not specifically affecting you, sometimes you, you know, you sort of forget to make that a priority or forget to speak out about some of those inequalities or injustices that are happening in the world so i wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you know you were a physician for many years before your daughter was born Um, how do you feel that having a child has changed sort of your interaction with patients or how that has i think it makes us better providers but
1: i'd love to hear your take on that oh 100 percent. (laughs) i you know when you get trained especially at a place like i did la county usc you really become a soldier because there's so much trauma you see, there's so much gunshot wounds, there's so many stabbings, there's so many abusive patients, there's also so many amazing patients that you take care of. But you just get this armor on you that's so thick that you know, the first year of residency, I think I had probably three or four patients make me cry. I remember one nurse in particular went to my defense because some homeless lady was screaming at me with a bag of cans and I just was so scared of her, but I really, I think two things happen. You, you you have this huge armor and you basically lose all your feelings. So you're like, I don't care about any of these patients. I'm gonna protect my emotions. I have my armor on. I'm gonna take care of them medically and clinically and that's it, I'm not gonna feel anything. And then I think as you get more experience and you, and you spend more time with the patients as you become an attending and go longer in your career, You kind of open that door back in and let them in and allow yourself to feel empathy. And you really start to treat them as part of your family. And then when you have family, you realize, you know, I could be in the same situation. They could be taking care of my child in the ER or my husband or my sister or my brother. And your sense of family or what they call in Hawaii, ohana, just gets really broad. And over here in Hawaii, everyone's your aunt and uncle. You know, everyone you call your auntie, your and I think it's lovely because by calling someone, I get called, you know, auntie Candace all the time. And it really gives you a sense of, um, what's the right word I'm thinking? A sense of obligation to take care of other people's kids and other people's families. And that's what I love about being here in Kauai and also maturing as an attending, is I feel now like the world is my ohana and I want to treat them like they're my family members. So if your child's sick, I'm going to treat your child like it's my child or your father or your grandfather, whoever. I'm going to tell you if this was my child, this is what I would do. And and I think I always did that, but I did it in a much more just um, sort of soldier way, just a very sure. unfeeling, unempathetic way. And now I can control my you it's like you get that jedi ability to control your feelings right you're just on the brink of crying you don't cry but you can still care and be empathetic and provide good care without falling to pieces and that is a very delicate spot to find it's like the perfect buzz right you don't want to get too drunk right you don't want to be sober yeah right (laughs) not that i drink a lot but i'm just saying there's like a perfect spot you want to be in to help people it's like the sweet spot of of caring and medicine but also
0: making sure you can still stay stay sane and you know and, and think clearly in those situations that gave me oh gave me the chills when you're talking about ohana i feel like just imagining the world where everyone had that kind of that kind of investment that kind of ownership over their community or their school or their hospital wherever they are i think the world would be a much different place if that was a, a pervasive feeling that people felt like these are my children in the streets and, you know, in the center city or wherever I am. And, and I think it would change a lot of things if we all, if we all had that attitude
1: for sure. I think one of my favorite statements ever made to me, and as I told you, I'm not religious, but our, my new director here, Dr. Spencer Smith said to me when I was sort of complaining about a difficult patient, um, who was horrible to me. And he said to me, Candace, these are all God's children. And I didn't take that necessarily from a religious standpoint, which, you know, was intended. But, all, but for me, from a, a spiritual sense and from a human sense was the way I identified it is this person used to be a child. They were a baby. They were a child. Somewhere along the way, things didn't go well for them. Mm-hmm. And now they're not being kind to me and they're in a difficult situation. And I just, in my mind, when I see people now who are difficult to me, I pretend like they're a child. Mm. And it makes it so much easier to treat, treat them knowing that there's a small kid in there that's scared or, and that they're acting this way because, you know, they were once that scared child that maybe wasn't treated well and had a horrible, had horrible things happen to them. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's a powerful thing. I think, uh, perspective and mindset can change the same situation for the same person from being, you know, super inconvenienced to being an opportunity to, really care for someone who probably doesn't get that care from other people because of the way that they, you know, the way that they act or the way that they speak. I think that that's every day in medicine, we have the opportunity to do that if we are willing to slow down and see and, and you know, really take the care that we, I think we all went into this field, not because we wanted to just robotically identify, treat, identify, treat. We wanted to have compassionate relationships with people. And that's that's an important reminder, especially in the age of electronic medical records where, you know, mm-hmm. we feel like we're on the computer, on the computer, you know, that time that you spend face to face with the patient is, it, it has the potential to be really powerful for you and for them. I think I, I underappreciated that in training and early in my career mm-hmm. that I thought I was there to help all these patients. But <laughs> the number of things that I have learned from my patients over the years,
1: it, it definitely is much more profound than I thought when I was in training. Right. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of patients, especially in ER, just come for that human connection. They don't necessarily want to be cured or you to solve their problem. They just want to be listened to and understood. And if you can do that and give them your time and your ear, I think they're so grateful, even if you don't heal them. And that's something that took me a long time to understand. You you often would feel like you failed if you didn't fix them. But right. What's that's the problem? Always... Identify the
0: cause. Right. Yeah, yeah. Make it better and send them home. Yeah. I think that's that's really important. So, two more things I want to talk about, your love of surfing and what seems to be an incredibly popular thing lately which I totally abhor mom guilt. So, mm-hmm. kind of touched on this a little bit earlier that when you when you take time to do things that fill you up as a mom, society tells us that even if we don't, we should feel guilty for investing in ourselves or doing things that bring us joy. So, I think this is an ongoing journey for many of us, but could you speak a little to your experience about that?
1: It was my third year in residency when I started to feel burnout or the popular term now is moral injury. And I like moral injury a lot better. because Oh, yes. Burnout is basically like, I can't do it. I'm just so tired and mentally and emotionally. I just, it basically throws fault on the provider where I feel like moral injury is the fact that we're work too many hours in a row. We see horrible things and have PTSD from it. And there's no, you know, we can't afford therapy with medical school debt and all of our obligations. So I really like the term moral injury. And I started to experience that at my third year of residency. And I went on a trip with the surf divas to Mexico to Sayulita. And I was, you know, pasty white and 15 pounds into my donut addiction and really spent the days just reflecting. I We did yoga in the morning and twice a day did surfing and had these wonderful relationships with these professional women. It was all female, which is great when you're learning a new sport. Um, and so that really uh, gave me back like a sense of self and mm-hmm. really filled my soul spiritually. And I realized basically, you know, my house of God would be the ocean from then on. And that's mm-hmm. where I felt recharged and, connected to the earth and the world. And from then on, I became obsessed with surfing to the point where my residency director basically said, if you don't slow down on the surfing, you're not going to make it through this program. (laughs) So I think that's, you know, I I had to learn basically a delicate balance of, Mm -hmm. of how much to surf and how much to apply to, um, being a resident and working. And that continued on as an attending and, you know, I, would, I had time to surf every day because I was single for years until I hit 40 and then became married and struggled with infertility. And a lot of my time was spent dealing with that. And then, as you said, once you have children, your basically your hobbies and all your activities that you love to do all of a sudden just get thrown to the side. And now you've got work, a child and your husband and that's it. And there's no time for you. Mm -hmm. So how do you carve that time out for you? And I think it's extremely difficult. I I don't think there really was much time for me the first year, and I've slowly discovered how to do it. Although I have to say I did go work at a surf resort when my child was four months old, but I can't say that that was (laughs) the best decision I ever made because it was in a very remote place with a four-month-old, but uh, I was very comfortable with – the staff there and I had Mm -hmm. someone I could hand my four month old off to that I trusted and could go surfing. So, you know, I I started pretty soon after giving birth, going back and surfing and my husband supported it, which helped. But there, you know, there's always that battle, I think, between men and women. Um, My husband was actually married before as well. And I have two extra bonus children. And we sort of discussed, oh, he knew before we had our daughter together, he said, we're going to fight over who gets to work out and I didn't believe him, <laughs> but I, it's true. It's, you know, who's going to watch the baby, who's going to go surf, who's going to get their exercise in. There's a struggle once, you know, have a child into your, you know, once was it just a two person partnership about, and it generally I have to say, from what I've noticed from other female physician friends in our book clubs, which just mean we go to each other's house and drink <laughs> and gossip is that really it falls upon women. We do, um, The majority of the household activities of the majority of the child rearing in most cases in my case it's a little different but um you know it's it's hard to there's still that gloria steinem the second shift which i read in wellesley college which is you both may work but when you go home you're, the women are going to have the majority of the childcare and the housekeeping and the groceries and all that other business. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a struggle and I, I, I don't have a great answer for it. I think having an honest conversation with your spouse about expectations and dividing activities is, or activity of labor basically is mm-hmm. important. So, you know, one ends up feeling like they're doing the majority of the work. I think you know, just having those conversations, but it's a constant struggle. I'm, are you part of physician mom's group online?
0: Oh no, I'm a PA. So I'm on like, I have like a PA mom's group and we're like often talking about it. And um, yeah, I feel like when looking back, I think if I had been more intentional from the get go, like I had just, I had had time to do it before our babies came. And then I feel like when you have a kid, everything just gets like squeezed, everything's getting compressed. And the first thing that gets squeezed out is like mom's sanity slash getting to the gym or whatever you need to be doing. And so I wish that I had said like, no, like this is a non-negotiable, like I need to be able to do this so I can be sane to take care of all of you and all of the things that I am dealing with. And so I think... To the younger mom, I would say, you know, you need to decide what's a non negotiable for you. What is a basic need that you need to happen in order for you to be sane so that you're a good mom and a good wife and, you know, you're able to function at work? And then you need to talk to your spouse about what their basic needs are and figure out a way where everyone, baby, mom, dad, you know, baby, partner, partner, can get their needs met within the obligations that you have with work and other things that you can't necessarily move around, but making sure that you're, you know, being intentional and having mm-hmm. conversations about that. I think at our house, it usually is that we don't have a conversation and somebody
1: blows. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's when you don't have the conversations and you just wait for someone to lose it because, you know, they've cleaned the kitchen for the sixth time and they don't feel like any you're contributing or just, I mean, honestly, even this week was a perfect example. I, had this just, you know, social media just outburst. And I, all of a sudden had this unexpected job and I unintentionally became the spokeswoman for the med bikini movement. So now all of a sudden I'm like getting up at five in the morning to control social media and answer email requests for TV. You know, it was on Hawaii TV. And then Podcast requests, and everyone's writing me these kind things, and I have to get back to. I mean, fortunately, my best friend, Lauren Bergloff, basically took over my social media account, and we just talk every day about what to say and what to post. And, um, and but she's doing that gratis. If I didn't have her, I'd be a complete disaster. But right by the end of the week, my husband's like, The kitchen is a mess. I can't yeah, do one more yeah. load. Yeah. What is happening? I said, I am an influencer now, Nick. I cannot <laughs> be doing dishes. I am, people are expecting me. It was really funny. And I go, I have influence to put out in the world. Uh, (laughs) Oh, and I love just dropping lines. Like people wrote me ridiculously nice things. Like you are a global hero, which when I heard, I almost fell backwards laughing in my chair just to hear like that big of a word about yourself. But I would look him straight in the eye and say, Nick, I'm a global hero. I (laughs) I cannot do the laundry today. I'm a global hero. And then he said, well, this global hero better hire someone to do the laundry. <laughs> and of course he's participating in doing it, but all of a sudden he was just feeling the brunt of it. So it would have been, it would have been better for me to say, you know, look, this is going to be a really busy work week for me. What can I do? But I waited till the end of the week, um, till we were about to have quarantine cocktails with some other doctor moms to hire someone to come clean for the first time in two years. I had someone come and clean the house, which I'm very proud of. But um, Great for you, actually, yeah.
0: We love our cleaning people. They save my yeah, life I don't, regularly. I
1: have just gone too long without, but I don't know if you've heard, but Hawaii is extremely expensive. And yeah, so sure. yeah. that just went away. And after I would do my 24-hour shifts, take a nap, I just cleaned the house. And that's just what I would do. Oh. So, um, But not this week it's a disaster (laughs) but i think that people need to hear that our houses are a disaster we're like fighting with our spouses
0: yeah this is real we're like having these blow-ups we had a big argument a couple months ago about the dentist my husband has five kids range ranging age from 17 to one and he had taken zero kids to the dentist ever zero
1: Oh, yeah, that's not okay. And I know you're listening right now.
0: Yeah, he's like probably (laughs) outside the door. He's like, "Uh, she's talking about that time that like, and so I just I totally lost it. And I was like, you need to take them to the dentist. I went to 32 appointments this one year, you need to take them to the dentist. And he's like, Okay, okay, I'm taking them to the dentist. And then the day of the appointment, he says, So where do our kids go to the dentist? (laughs) Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> and like, I love and uh, that. you know, I'm talking to my mom about it, and she's like, "Well, that's on you, right? Like, you didn't delegate that any sooner that you were always taking them." Yeah. And I think that communication on the front end. Hindsight's always twenty twenty, but I think going forward, I'm trying to be more like when I feel that resentment building, when I feel like I'm like, "Oh, one of these days I'm going to blow." You need to have that conversation yeah. then, not on the day when you
1: are erupting. Exactly. Yeah, it's so true. I think that could stop a lot of these. <laughs> unpleasant encounters with our spouses yeah
0: making time making time to talk to it before and it is an emergency that's always helpful Mm -hmm. absolutely Uh, well well thank you I know it sounds like you have so very many people that are wanting to hear from you and I think you have a very a very important and powerful message and I think that it speaks to you know, your character and the fact that you didn't sort of post this, go viral and then sort of run away, but instead you're saying, you know, I've been handed this microphone. Mm -hmm. I have a suddenly quickly built platform and I'm going to use it to spread truth and, and things that I think are important out into the world. I think that that's very impressive. And so kudos to you.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I just, um, yeah, I really, I, you know what I, I think people thought, you know, she's very, there were some comments in social media that were saying things like, oh, she's attention seeking. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> You're like, I no, didn't even was, want this. Like, <laughs> this is not what I wanted. So I did, I think that's been made clear. Um, I have these people, they're like captain defenders. It's amazing. There's a group of women that go around and look for trolls in my comments and basically like say, oh no, you've got this all wrong and explain. Not today, like, Karen. Not today. <laughs> actual, totally. It's so funny. But um, yeah. And, it, you know, it's a great opportunity for me to support women in medicine. And there's this great, you know, med bikini site if people want to go to on Facebook, if you want support. And then, of course, it's also an opportunity for me to, to pursue things I want to do, like write a book and not be embarrassed or self conscious that I'm going to talk about sex in it or my travels to other countries or, you know, things that have happened to me or, or my thoughts and beliefs, and that we all have different thoughts and beliefs. And, you know, religious culture and all that. And um, I think I'm just one voice. And if I want to get it out there, I, I shouldn't be nervous about it. And I think that's what this social media outburst has given me is the confidence to use my voice for women in medicine. And also for my, you know, personal goals, which were to write the book. And I also have a Dr. Candy survival kit I've wanted to make for seven years, which is like a really cool waterproof kit to help people when they travel, you know, for kids for adults for whatever and so I'm finally you know able to do it because I have a platform now and I never would have had that before without this hashtag med bikini post
0: (laughs) sure yeah I think sometimes you're like wanting to do things you sort of you think them, you maybe put them out in the universe. And sometimes you're standing, you're like, I should jump. I've been thinking about jumping for a while. And the universe is just like, here's a giant shove, like in the direction of, yeah. where you, you know, it's, I mean, which is sometimes it super was. scary, but sometimes it's like, okay, like I hear you, I'm going to, I'm going to do these things that I've been wanting to do.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's one thing I'd love to say to anyone who's listening to this is, just to write down what you want to manifest, whether it's a man in your life, a woman in your life. So, a par- you know, a partner or whether it's a dream you have or a goal. I think writing that down and putting it out to the universe is so powerful and absolutely something that I should have put more faith into previously. And I wish that I'd done all this a long time ago, <laughs> but, um, you yeah, know, better than
0: never. Right. Yes, absolutely. And I mean, here you are, and you're doing it. And I can't wait to to read the book. And I will be I have kids that are getting hurt uh, all across the continent. So I will be first in line for your uh, for your Dr. Candy survival kit for sure. Oh, awesome. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thanks you for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure.
0: Until next time, keep on slaying your own fire breathing dragons. Thank you so much for hitting play on another episode of fulfilled the podcast. I have a favor to ask. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends, take a screenshot and share it on social. You can tag me on Instagram at Mrs. Tracy Bingaman, and you can tag the podcast at fulfilled podcast. And please consider leaving a review. I'd love to hear what you think. And your reviews can help other moms find me so they can grow alongside you. Oh, I almost forgot. Don't forget to subscribe so you get next week's episode automatically in your podcast queue. Instant inspiration and all the mom jokes? Yes, please. We'll see you next week on Fulfilled, the podcast.